Good afternoon. This is Scott Becker, and welcome to Becker's ASC Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management Driven ASC Plus the Future of Spine Virtual Conference. We're so excited to have joining us today. I'm joined today for about 20 minutes by Dr. David Rothbard. Dr. David Rothbard is both a magnificent surgeon and also a fascinating person. He's going to talk to us mostly today about COVID-19 and lessons learned and what he's seen. He'll also talk to us and give us a little bit of insight into his personal background, too. David, let me ask you to start by just doing a quick moment to introduce yourself. All right, like you said, Scott, I'm a neurosurgeon, and uh, our practice, Fine Team Techs, is located in Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex. We have over 40 providers. Uh, we have four ambulatory surgery centers, and I'm also chairman of the board of our uh, surgical hospital as well. So we've gone through quite a few challenges in these past couple of months. And let me also it's say good. this, Scott. Uh, I want to thank you for putting, continuing to put this on despite all the challenges. This is clearly one of the best conferences I attend each and every year, and kudos to you for pulling this off. Well, well thank you. We've got a great team, and we can't do it without magnificent surgeons and physician leaders speaking, because that's what really is the heart of the conference, and we, quite frankly, can't get wait to get back to having live conferences, uh, but enjoying the chance to virtually visit with so many people in this period of time. So thank you. Let me ask you this question. Talk to us for a moment about, because practice is so different in different areas of the country right now. Talk to us about practice in Texas, what ramping up is looking like. A little bit of insight there. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. We have not, being in the middle of the country, we have not really been hit as hard as some of the areas that we've heard about, certainly uh, nothing like New York. And so, uh, you know, we were very quick to shut down after the outbreak hit. But as you, as you well know, Texas was one of the earlier states to start ramping back up. And so uh, we've been up and going for the past few weeks, and uh, it's, it's been an experience. And, and talk to us for a moment about what ramping back up looks like. Was there a lot of pent-up demand? Are you back to 50% of pre-COVID caseload, 70%, 80%? What does the pace and ramp up feel like? Well, uh, to understand the ramp up, you have to understand the ramp down. And so uh, we have a lot of moving pieces. So between our practice, our ASCs, our management company, and our hospital, we have around 350 employees. And, uh, and we feel that our most important asset is our human resources. So keeping everybody safe was paramount. So the first thing we had to do uh, outside of the hospital, I'll just talk about the ASCs and the practice for a moment, was to get everybody out of the office and continuing to work as quickly as possible. So we moved our centralized phone system out of the office, all business functions out of the office, and then we very quickly, within three days, we were up and running on virtual uh, visits and telemedicine. So that was a, that was a huge, huge boost for us. So at that point, uh, we were seeing all virtual visits. Now at this point, two weeks in, uh, we're back up to, uh, depending upon which silo you look at, we're back up to about 80 to 85% of, of volumes. And some of the, we did have a lot of pent up demand. And the reason we're not up to 100% on the procedure side is because safety is, has been paramount. So we're a little bit slower 
in terms of turnover times, in terms of just how many patients and uh, physicians we're willing to have in a given area and staff on a given day. And when you talk about back to, I think the 80 to 85% number would be viewed as very enviable by a great deal of the country. I think people would view that extremely positive, that that really feels like they could see a future and a positive future. Let me ask you a question about fast moving procedures like pain management versus slower procedures that take a little bit more longer, like a complicated spine procedure. Is there a difference in throughput of those or or, or the same challenges? No, it's uh, very different. So for example, for injections, the patients aren't being intubated. So there's uh, theoretically no aerosolization of viral particles. So you don't have to have the 20 room turnovers that you do for a pain procedure that you do for a, a patient who's intubated where aerosolization can take place. And so uh, initially, um, the move was to have 20 turnovers of the ear circulation. So we were waiting about 15 minutes after a surgery till we start, till the patient was out of the room and we were starting to turn over the room. That's beginning to evolve. But on the, on the um, pain side, where it is rapid turnover, we still do a very thorough clean of the room. And so the turnover time is a little bit slower. So uh, two weeks ago, when we reopened up our ASCs, uh, we were much slower than we are now. And this morning, I had a meeting where we're going to start increasing our volumes even, even further. And so there's been a great education so far in what you can and can't do with new codes, new rules, new, new, new sort of procedures. There, there is, and you know, and some of these are uh, some of these we have no guidance. We don't really know. So, for example, I know uh, some some ASCs where they're doing pain procedures are merely doing um, screening for symptoms and fever and saying, okay, we'll proceed. Or, the, or they were doing the ID now test, which has now been shown to have uh, some inaccuracy. We again felt that the safety of our team was paramount and our patients. So we actually uh, were able to come up with a way where we could do testing uh, prior to the procedure on all of our pain patients as well. And that's, that was a learning process as well. You had a number one, you had to identify a reliable source that had enough, uh, had enough of the testing to be able to be performed. Number two, you had to figure out, was it accurate? And number three, how would you administer that? And how is that going? Because that seems like sort of the one of the holy grails for safety in the facility that every single person that comes in, you know, if they're COVID positive or not. How hard was it to ramp that up? Is that very different in different parts of the country right now? What's your sense of that? It's fascinatingly different, which, you know, state by state, uh, even within Texas, city by city, it's, it's, it's very different. We've been very fortunate. We, we have not suffered the, um, uh, the, the inability to obtain testing or PPE. So we feel like uh, given the current environment, we are practicing as safe as possible. And, and without that, you'd feel a little bit like you're flying blind or, or you just have to be so overprotective. I feel like we would be flying blind and, um, and no matter how protective you are, 
You know, the, the statistics, everybody's aware of how many asymptomatic carriers there are uh, out there. And so, you know, it just gives us all peace of mind. Having said that, I think the key here is that we still treat every patient as though they are COVID positive. And so we, we go to that extent. And how sort of protected up or garbed up are your staff and employees? How do, how do they look compared to how they used to look in terms of what they're wearing, how they're protected and so forth? Are there significant differences there? Well, the, um, on the pain side, um, you know, everybody is staying masked the entire time, including the patients. On the surgery side, um, uh, during intubation, the uh, um, N95 masks and then um, face shields for the anesthesiologist and whoever's assisting the anesthesiologist during uh, intubation. And for the surgeons, uh, it depends on what type of procedure, whether they opt to wear an N95 or not. And that was the impetus for me shaving my beard as well. So, you know, I'm taking, I'm being as cautious as possible. So um, we are using smoke evacuators on our cautery and doing everything possible. Give me a sense of, first question, how much additional cost in having to take these measures? Not so much in time, because that really gets the answer in the 80, 90% versus 100%, and over time getting throughput better but how much additional cost in testing masks, scar protectors? Is significant or not significant? How do you see that? It, it is. It is. Uh, it is on a on a purely cost basis. I don't believe it is a significant number. And then, obviously, when you compare that to uh, somebody getting ill, you you can't measure that cost. But on a pure uh, dollars and cents, not not significant. It's not itself daunting, that, that part of it. And what about, do you see yourself at a spot, I'm going to ask you the first question of getting back to 100% of where you were before. Is that foreseeable? Are there so many different barriers today that it'll be hard to get back there? And then after that question, I'm going to ask you the economic impact on patients. Do you worry that demand will be soft based purely on unemployment and other economic issues too? You know, that's a, it's a great question. We've been having those dialogues. What's a reasonable number to strive for? Because uh, right now, and, and, and Scott, the rules I'm discussing with you right now that we're implementing a week from now will be different. Every week they evolve. So where we stand right now and the incidence of, of COVID-19 in the community, I would say it's hard to imagine getting back to a hundred percent, really for two reasons. Number one, demand. So a patient who has god-awful nerve pain where they can't breathe, they, can, they can't ignore that. They have to have treatment, right? But, you know, a significant part of our patient population, we're a multidisciplinary clinic, so we treat a lot of chronic low back pain as well and things of that nature. And so the weekend warrior might be a little slower to come in or the patient who's kind of got nagging back pain, but they can live with it. You know, we're definitely seeing a decrease in seeking of healthcare. The second aspect of it is just the throughput through the facilities to continue to do it in as safe a way as possible. It's, it's really going to be hard to get up to that 100% number, at least right now. And, and what are you hearing from patients in terms of their concern 
that they'll come to a healthcare facility and get sick. How much of that is there? Is that sort of already starting to sort of die away, that concern? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting because you see these pictures of these large gatherings of people who seem not to be concerned at all. The, the older population, it seems, anecdotally from my observation, who are the people who mainly end up with back pain and issues like that, they seem to be a little bit more concerned than the, the younger population. Now, having said that, people who, uh, who feel like uh, they are concerned about COVID-19 and in a healthcare facility, and we do get asked that question, this is a big boon to the ASCs. I mean, I, to be for me to look at a patient and say, I operate in two facilities. One is a surgical hospital where we don't treat COVID-19 patients. The other is an ASC where we don't treat COVID-19 patients. If I was a patient, that's certainly where I would want to get my, my care from. So there could be a silver lining on the ASC side here, I think. And you do hear that more and more. Where, where people will talk about, there's a multi-hospital system here, and they can give you the exact numbers. There's no COVID patients there, there's 90 here, there's 20 here, and if you're a patient, you're gonna opt towards, you don't wanna be in the, in the hospital that's been used as much as possible to treat the COVID patients. Totally, I totally agree with that. And, and that is one consistent thing I hear. Uh, people, when I bring that up to them, they are definitely relieved uh, to hear that. So you're in Texas. As you look at this, other than some blip in statistics in like Louisiana coming out of Mardi Gras and so forth, some of the southern states, Arizona, Texas, Florida, have not had nearly as bad outbreaks and surges as some of the northern and midwestern and northeastern states. Do you think that's likely to be reoccurring due to similar types of trends in flu and respiratory, other illnesses, or do you think that just is good fortune because not as densely populated? What, 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 any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, the, the, looking at the literature on this, you, you see so many different conflicting articles about the effect of, you know, temperature and weather and, and, and all of that. And it's, it's, it's really hard to know. I mean, clearly, you know, Dallas Fort Worth, if you walk around the streets of our cities, we're spread out. You know, we have seven or eight million people, but it's very, very spread out as opposed to a New York where everybody's riding the subway and everybody's always on top of each other. So it's, uh, it's, it's hard to know. Um, you know, look, since I've been in, uh, I came from Chicago to Dallas, I've had a lot of good fortune. Uh, being here at the right time. And I think this is just one of those things again, and I'm, I'm hoping it continues. You just don't know. Right, what you, what you don't know is quite frankly, if it turns out to really be something that's on a recurring basis and there's not an easy vaccine that really helps to slow down spread a great deal, which there might very well be quite frankly. Uh, but, but if there's not, and it turns out that these less densely populated places where people don't rely as much on mass transit, and if, if climate has a big part of it, I mean, you do worry that the whole country is going to, going to want to move south. <laughs> you, you know, you get concerned about that. And, and you know, and, and look, Scott, you know, if there is not a, uh, we're going to have to keep adapting, right? And that's been the key. 
we don't know what's going to happen in the fall. We don't know what's going to happen next week. So we just have to keep pushing. And we, the thing about this and the, the thing I would implore everybody who's listening to this is that you need to be living and managing in a proactive rather than a reactive way because things are going to keep changing and you have to pivot on a moment's notice. And, and with that, let me ask you two questions. One, are you thrilled to be back prancing your craft today you know, compared to where you were a month ago or six weeks ago? Oh, Scott, it, it was incredible. When, when we got back to doing this full time, you know, that was the longest I had gone without doing surgery since 1988. So, you know, I, I missed it. I still love it. And uh, yes, I am very happy to be doing it. And frankly, we, we, there were a bunch of patients who were in agonizing pain. So it was really good to be able to take care of them. So will this leave some surgeons, will this be somewhat of an antidote to a little bit of burnout because sort of forced to take a six to eight week break, which they never thought they would take, or will this just exhaust people because of the uncertainty of their practice? How will that play out for different people? Any thoughts on that? I think uh, burnout, first of all, it's a real thing that a lot of people don't like to admit. And um, I think the psychological toll of what this is causing, we're, we're reading, you know, in, in your columns, we're reading about how many doctors and practices are suffering. And then you take this pressure to throw on top of that. I think it's going to make the situation worse rather than better, quite honestly. Thank you. And then any sense, I know it's so hard for this period of great uncertainty, any sense from you of what the next three to five years look like? Any, any thoughts? Just business as usual, or do you end up more people want to become acquired by hospitals or not really? What do you, what do you sense is out there in terms of practice and freedom to practice and everything? What, any sense of where things go from here? Yeah, well, three to five years from now, uh, you know, I've been living in three to five week increments recently, but I'll, I'll go ahead and answer that question. I think there's a few things, some of which are good coming out of this. You know, number one is that I've been pushing for virtual visits for a long time. And in our field, there's a great many of these visits that can be done virtually. So I think hopefully that is going to be here, that's going to be legislated to be still available. And I think uh, the genie is out of the bottle and we should be able to continue with that. And the other thing is I would see that this be an expansion of ASCs. Um, you know, this, the, the threat of the pandemic, particularly in the scenario that you talk about, Scott, if there's no vaccine or no cure, people are going to be seeking facilities where it's not an acute care hospital and they are seeking ASCs. Also, you know, to date, although there's a lot of talk about it, cost and quality still don't really seem to matter a whole lot. There's pockets around the country where it does, but for most markets, it doesn't. I do think that cost and quality will start to finally matter. And um, I also think that we're going to see a new evolution. I, I could see, I could foresee things like data analytics starting to come into uh, clinical medicine and market disruptors like uh, you know what we're seeing from Amazon and JP Morgan coming together, things of that nature. So, so really, even with this great deal of shocking change in a short period of time, 
a lot of changes still to come. I mean, a, a lot of things that will continue to evolve. The, the, the growth and becoming regularity of sort of virtual visits. Nobody wants to go backwards. I mean, both right. Patients prefer it. Physicians prefer it. At least, at least for a lot, of, a lot of their visits, they prefer it. Not for everything. So it's very nice to sit down with your physician, really talk to your physician. But at least a lot of this to be done with huge convenience by virtual visits. Clean facilities. People want to be in facilities where there's less chance of, of, of hospital infections or infections. That's always been a big issue. This puts a big light on it. We really will ear more strongly towards wanting to be in facilities where they think have less chance of having a, a COVID or other type of infection. Um, and then lots of other market disruptions. And, and we'll sort of see how those go. But, but fascinating how this can play well for outpatient visits, outpatient surgery, surgery centers, and so forth. Uh, Dr. Rothbard, it's always a magnificent pleasure to visit with you. Uh, we hope to have you back in not too long. You've got this magnificent, fascinating life story that you've given as a keynote speech. We hope to have you back giving that again in not very long. We're so pleased to have you today, 20 minutes, speaking about what you see right now. And, it, and it's uplifting, I think, for many people to hear that you're already back after a few weeks to 80 to 85% of volume. I think that's the, that's the dream of where people want to get back to and hope they're not disrupted again next fall. Uh, or next winter. But uh, David, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, you're fantastic. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Be well.